Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. On August 28, 1963, a determined crowd of some 250,000 gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It was a protest that challenged America and its leaders to confront the inequalities faced by African Americans and to do something about it. From that peaceful pressure flowed legislative action and the passage of landmark civil rights legislation signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson. Bills that opened up housing, voting, and everyday life inched our country closer to fulfilling its promise. Speaking that day, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered one of his and the world's most famous orations. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. What has happened to Martin's dream? Martin Luther King III was just five years old when his father gave that speech and 10 when his father was assassinated in 1968. In his life, King's oldest son has marched and been arrested at civil rights protests with family members, including his mother, activist Coretta Scott King, who died in 2006. And this Saturday, on August 28th, on the 58th anniversary of the march and his father's I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King III and his family's organization will be among the leaders of a movement of more than 160 organizations in March on Voting Rights in Washington and cities across the country. Other leaders planning to attend include the Reverend Al Sharpton and Alejandro Chavez, the grandson of labor and civil rights activist Cesar Chavez. The march comes at a time when voting rights bills are struggling to even be debated in the Senate, which has adjourned for summer recess. But there's no more important issue for all Americans who want their voices to be heard in upcoming elections that will determine the direction of the country. For Martin Luther King III, following his family's tradition, this cause is worth marching and fighting for. Welcome to Equal Time, Martin Luther King III. Thank you. We have this march coming up that is reminiscent of the march of 58 years ago. In some ways, do you feel that you are refighting some of the same battles that your father and activists of the 1950s and 60s fought for? Unfortunately, we go, we're going backward and not forward. And so that's why when we look at the right to vote that everyone should have, many state legislatures, over 400 bills have been proposed. Over 18 states now have passed legislation to restrict people's rights to vote, as opposed to expanding the right to vote. The 1965 Voting Rights Act expanded the right to vote, but it was struck down in 213 by the Supreme Court, who said we didn't need voting rights protections anymore. We see, obviously, that is not true. Last year, people voted at levels that we've never seen before, and it caused a reaction. The reaction was, oh my gosh, all these people voting, we must find ways to, to make it harder for people to vote. Yeah, well, what do our country's leaders need to do on this important issue of voting rights? And why does it seem somehow that it hasn't been a real legislative priority? Well, from my perspective, um, it is really about one party having an advantage of some kind of creating advantage over the other, as opposed to Again, allowing and making it possible and easy for every person to vote. They, someone seems to want just some people to vote. And that's the way they believe that they can maintain their power, as opposed to 
what democracy is supposed to be about, you know, a government of, for, and by the people. Uh, it's now the politicians exclusively in some cases. Most of these politicians happen to be Republicans who are voting these laws in place. And uh, it seems to me that you are retarding the democratic process as opposed to, again, expanding. You're limiting opportunity as opposed to lifting and making opportunity easy and available for all people. And so we are saying to the nation, we're saying particularly to the federal government, because this is where we went in 1965 to get intervention. There was something called a preclearance provision in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which meant that the Justice Department would have to look at and approve the things that states did, particularly if they were things like reducing. And that's what would be uh, helpful today for the Senate. The House has already passed one bill. This week, they're going to be passing, I believe, the John Lewis bill. Uh, and uh, the Senate thus far does not seem like it's ready to pass that bill. So we have to target like a laser the United States Senate to get them to pass this bill that will make it possible for expansion of voting rights. Mm -hmm. well, Martin, I want to go back to something you said that sometimes it seems like we're going backward because in the past, the Voting Rights Act was uh, reauthorized with overwhelming support from both parties. So why haven't we come farther? And in some cases, it looks like we're even going backward. All of this about creating new legislation to restrict the vote was done under the auspices of people uh, believing the lie that President, the former President Trump told that the election was flawed, that there were violations in, in elections and there needed to be audits done and we need to change the voting process, which, which is tantamount to reducing particularly in black and brown communities, so that when you see that uh, absentee ballots were used and used very effectively, reduce the number of absentee ballots, reduce the site so that there are longer lines in communities of color, in the black and brown community. Uh, even in my state, tragically, there's a state law that was passed that if the legislature does not like the result, which is all Republican or mostly Republican, they can change the nonpartisan election committee so that uh, a new result can be put in place. These things to me seem, seem like they are unconstitutional, but of course you have judges who maybe interpret things differently. So we've, we've got some uphill battles to do, and that's why oversight at the federal level, meaning the Justice Department, would provide the kind of relief that is needed because these laws are regressive, repressive, oppressive, uh, unnecessary, un-American, and undemocratic. Yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned your home state of Georgia, as that's uh, the, the bill that says actually they'll be able to change the results. So with that bill and with not having preclearance, but yet we have the urgency of the midterms coming up. Um, and do you think that adds, how do you think that adds some urgency to it with the 2022 elections coming up that really could determine who controls the House and the Senate? You know, we live in a, in a country where 700,000 people um, pay taxes, but yet they don't have any representation in, the, in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., largely be black and brown people. They have a congressperson who is invited to dinner every day, but she can't vote, so she can't eat. 
They have no United States Senate representation. That is unconscionable that 700,000 people uh, would have uh, no rights. And so that's another issue that we're saying, look, you know, this must pass. I think there are 46 senators so far who've signed on more than ever before. So it is getting very close and we have to keep pushing for that issue. Now, what I didn't say was, I think we are registering also 2 million people between now at a minimum and the midterm elections. The midterm elections are gonna be so critically important uh, for the president getting any agenda that he wants done. Um, and so the president also must continue to be engaged and, and lead in, 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 in this fight, um, just as he's dealing with so many other issues that are important uh, to our nation and our world. But the most important issue, in my judgment, is if you don't secure the right to vote for everyone uh, in a way that is not restrictive, uh, certainly this president won't be able to be effective in terms of getting any of his agenda done. Yeah. Yeah. And adding to the mix of this is we just had the new census report showing a growth in the non-white population in this country, although with folks drawing different district lines and gerrymandering, it's not guaranteed that those folks will have a voice. So how do you think that census plays into this volatile political mix here? Well, you know, that's, again, that's critically, why it's critically important uh, to have federal oversight because uh, the way the lines are gonna be drawn, the gerrymandering that's gonna take place could in fact create a prospect where a lot of people don't have representation. And historically, they have shown us how they can draw lines to exclude people, uh, to keep, to silence people's not having a voice. And so that, that again is unacceptable, but that's, therein lies why we must make a lot, not just make a lot of noise, but be out in the streets saying, look, this is an important issue. In fact, you know, polling has shown that over 60% of Americans want to see, uh, you know, voter registration expanded, want to see this legislation, want to see the John Lewis bill passed. But yet the senators, uh, particularly on the Republican side, it doesn't seem to have reached them yet. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your father and his legacy. What do you think your father would make of where we are today as a country? Uh, I I think my father would be greatly disappointed in where we are as a nation around um, the issues that he called were the triple evils. And he said those triple evils are the evil of racism, poverty, and he used militarism, which really means violence also. So when you look at what's happened around poverty, racism, and militarism, we are not making the kind of strides that we need to be to move our country into the area of where it ought to be. He talked about the America that ought to be. Um, He never talked about America. He talked about its greatness, and it could become great, but he never would have talked about something being great again because no one knows when that period is. Uh, but he would have talked about the America that can become and should become. So he'd be greatly disappointed in where we are right now. But he'd also be tremendously, um, he would be tremendously, not not, uh, just engaged, but proud 
of the young people that have been demonstrating last year, particularly, not just in the United States, after the tragic death of George Floyd, every state in our nation, there were demonstrations. And oftentimes those demonstrations were led by whites, every state. So he'd be very proud of those demonstrations and many of them, as I said, led by young people, proud of the activism. He'd be proud of Black Lives Matter, no matter what someone may say who does not understand. Be very disappointed in our nation trying to make critical race theory an issue by saying we're going to vote that down. I mean, why would you vote against learning history? This is not making anyone a victim or reducing who someone is. It's about learning because it is said that a people that do not know their history are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. So it's a very sad commentary that all of this is being created as if something is happening. Critical race theory, first of all, isn't even taught at the primary and secondary level. Maybe some institutions, you know, talk about it, but by and large, it's not even taught. It's taught in law school. It was designed to be taught at another level of uh, at a college and university. And yet you're going all over the country creating these laws, really creating division as opposed to promoting truth. So I think my father would be very disappointed in where we are right this moment. But he would also still be hopeful. Always the hope. Uh, well, you were so young when uh, your father spoke that day, and then, of course, when he was killed. So I'd just like to ask you, how do you remember him? And what do you remember about that day, if anything, that speech, and about your father? So on the speech, I would have to say I was about five years old. I did not yeah. get to come to Washington uh, for the March in Washington. So I wouldn't remember. I vaguely remember watching it on television, mm -hmm. but I have very small mem remembrances. My greater memory is the many, many times that I've heard the speech. Um, and I, you know, you can, you can hear it and learn something different every time you hear it uh. or be motivated. And, and one of the things I, I've heard, I heard someone say that is so profound you know, you, you can listen, you listen with your ears, but you hear with your heart. Mm -hmm. So I listen to the speech thousands of times, but when I listen and I hear it, I move to tears, no matter how many times I hear the speech. But again, mm -hmm. we, it's been said that you listen with your ears and you hear with your heart. Yeah. What part makes you, moves you particularly? Well, there are several parts. I think when I go back to the very beginning of the speech, when he talks about a check that uh, often this part is missed because we only look at the I have a dream part, but a check was sent before our national treasury and it came back marked insufficient funds. Mm. Um, and in a real sense, uh, that is where we try to live today. That we, But the reality is we do have funds to be able to address all of the issues that we choose to if we choose to. The fact of the matter is we have not yet made the commitments that we need to make to address, you know, this this vast number of issues. I mean, we learned a lot tragically, again, through the pandemic, because prior to the pandemic, we had no resources. But we've had three, um, you know, dad talked about a guaranteed uh, universal basic income back in the 60s. And we were never able to do that. But through the pandemic, we've been able to provide at least three sets of basic incomes that people were able to get. I'm not suggesting that would also always be permanent, but it shows that we can do something when we choose to or when yeah. we have to. And so my point is, 
there are some things that we need to look at as our society uh, and figure out how do we work through these issues. We have the ability to do most anything. Uh, we just have not identified the will. But when ability and will become matched, it yields results and changes. Yeah. How do you remember him? I remember, well, first of all, I had the opportunity to travel with him on about eight occasions. Uh, every week or most weeks, we would go to the YMCA, my brother and I, and swim with him and get exercise. We, so we spent, we didn't have a large quantity of time, but the quality of time was remarkable. We used to ride bicycles. He would ride bicycles together. We'd play uh, you know, football, baseball in the front yard, um, a, a number of things like that. But dad was I, he was not the disciplinarian. He, he, I don't ever remember <laughs> him disciplining, disciplining us. My mom did. Uh, yeah. But uh, he was like our playmate. He, I remember one day seeing him come up the, sta- the stairs of our home, and he looked drained. He was, you could tell, I mean, it felt like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. But as soon as the door opened and he saw one of us, a whole new energy came over his, his whole cadence changed. And it was like, you know, wow, I'm just I'm so happy to see my children and I want to devote my energy to 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 to, the, to my children and making sure they're happy. So, you know, those are the kind of things that I remember about about dad. And of course, sitting down at the breakfast table on Sunday mornings before going to church, uh, him telling us what was going on in, in the in the nation, what he was doing. And then, of course, us having th- those uh, kind of conversations as a family. Mm-hmm. Now, you, uh, in years since, have been an activist. You've marched with your family members, with your mom. You mentioned your mom, the disciplinarian. Um, and you yourself, your wife and your young daughter, have become really outspoken activists and movement leaders. So talk a little bit about following this example of it being a family cause and tradition. Well, you know, um, my wife has been an activist uh for over 20 years uh, now, I've been obviously over 40 years now, but um, she worked uh, at an institution called the Center for Democratic Renewal, which was designed initially it was the anti-Klan watch. It was founded by the late great C.T. Vivian. Dr. Vivian worked very yes. closely with my dad. And of course, Dr. Vivian uh, was a giant in terms of civil and, and human rights. And Ann Brayton, who is a white woman activist out of Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so she worked with them uh, for an, a number of years, monitoring hate crimes uh, mm-hmm. around the country. Uh, today, she is the president of the Drum Major Institute, the organization that she and I uh, lead. I'm the chairperson of the board of the Drum Major Institute. And the Drum Major Institute was inspired by one of my father's last speeches called the Drum Major Instinct. And that was the last speech he gave at Ebenezer in February of 1968, two months before he died, where he, oh, I shouldn't say died, where he was killed, two months before he was killed. He talked about this drum major instinct that we all have that has to be harnessed. But he said, if I want to be a drum major, uh, say I was a drum major for justice, for peace, for equity. Um, and in fact, part of that speech, he does his own eulogy. And my mom actually utilized that. Uh, in Ebenezer on April uh, 9th of 1968, when dad was funeralized, dad did as part of his own eulogy. And Mm. he let the audience hear that. Uh, That was, uh, mom did that specifically. But the drum major 
uh, Institute was inspired by that. And, and today our mission, we believe that we must eradicate poverty, racism, and violence through peace, justice, and equity. Now, uh, you must be very proud. Oh, and then my your, daughter. Your young daughter, yes. Uh, everyone knows her. We, we, we have created the environment for her to do what she wants to do. But she, on her own, when she was three years old, she was very concerned about the homeless population that she would see. And she always wanted to give them something when we saw them. And she said, one day I'm going to build some kind of facility to house these people because this is this is unreasonable. And, and you know, it's interesting because she came to that on her own, I guess, seeing her parents. Um, but she has activism in her heart, in, in her mind. We just want to support her. We're not pushing her one way or the other. This is something that is in her spirit. And we are just grateful. And we want to make sure she stays grounded and, 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 and focused because she has this fervent desire to create change uh, in our nation. And we're just so proud of her, my wife and I. Yeah, it comes by it naturally, it seems. Um, how about your speech? Any pressure when it comes to your speech that you're going to deliver on that day? Um, after all, your father's words you, have become iconic. Well, of course. Um, I've, I've done these uh, marches. Uh, Reverend Sharpton and I have done at least five now um, marches to observe the uh, anniversary of the March on Washington. Uh, we historically did not do them back to back. This is one of the few times where we've done the 57th and the 58th. And of course, we'll get to the 60th soon. But it's always, um, it, there's always pressure. But I stay focused on the issue. And I'm, you know, my view is look, I'm Martin King III. I'm not Martin Luther King Jr., nor would I even try to be. Uh, if I tried to live in my father's, footsteps follow, I would fail miserably and wake up uh, in a very bad mood all the time. So I'm thankful that, you know, I've learned to be the best Martin I can be. My mom gave me liberation by telling me as a young person, be your best. Be who, You don't have to go to Morehouse, although I did. You don't have to be a minister. I haven't been called to the ministry to my uh, knowledge. You don't have to be a civil rights leader. I have been involved in civil rights. Just be your best self and we will support you. And I've always had that support from my mom and, 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 and family. And, and so that's, that's how I've, I've chosen. And, you know, I'm going to continue to do all that I can, whatever that is. Uh, to make a contribution, hopefully to build on the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. Yeah, and as you say, you stay focused on the issues, and this issue of focus that is so important is voting rights for this one. Um, yeah. Earlier you said uh, that your father would be proud of seeing the intergenerational, multiracial coalition that came together. And that day in 1963, it did see all the ages, races, all faiths, all professions were represented on that stage and in the crowd. For change coming now in 2021 and beyond, will that same sort of coming together be essential for everybody to see these issues of justice as affecting everybody? Well, I, I certainly think so. I think that it's always important. That's why we have over 162 organizations that are, are coalescing with us. It, you know, any one group can do something, but you're far more effective when you're able to build 
coalitions and to bring uh, for a, a very diverse group of people together who are focused on an issue. And really, that's a reflection of what America is supposed to be. Uh, that's, that's where you have the push and pull, what is going on right now. There are some, I guess, um, for, for sure, who are very concerned about losing what they think is power for them. And that's why we see all these setbacks, because there are some in the white community who really believe that, you know, we're losing out. We're losing our quality of life. We're losing our jobs. We're losing all kinds of things. Those are all excuses. We should be working together to make America uh, the America that it ought to be and the America that is righteous for all of the people uh, that live here. And those who come to our shores, people come here because there is great opportunity. And so we will always, I will always function from building coalitions and, and showing uh, what America can become. Mm, yeah, that it's, uh, somebody do believe is sort of a zero sum uh, game, what somebody gets, as opposed to it, everybody benefits when everyone is taking part. No yeah. question. No question. Um, now, we saw the raft, all of those uh, iconic and landmark civil rights laws, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act. They were legislative federal remedies, but they also were fueled by the activism on the ground. People like your, your father and John Lewis and so many others who actually really were marching and, and in front of the world. Is that what you hope for with this coming together on this anniversary well, what around we, voting? Yes, that is exactly what we hope for, that, that, the, the, that we are fueling uh, the flames of, of, of justice, of, 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 uh, of righteousness. And we know that it is effective just because when dad in 1964, he had visited President Johnson after the Civil Rights Act was signed and President, he said to the president, we, we now need to get the voting, voting rights. He said, I'm sorry, I, I just don't have political currency. I've, I've run out of, I don't have anything to get it done. Uh, so dad, in leaving the White House, when he left with his colleagues, said, we're going to have to give the president some power. And of course, later on became Selma, led by John Lewis and Hosea Williams across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And um, then eventually there was a full march from Selma to Montgomery, and the president was able to sign the Voting Rights Act. So uh, we were in Washington about two and a half weeks, almost three weeks ago now, meeting with senators and uh, congresspersons on both sides of the aisles. And we were talking about getting this legislation done. And everyone said to us that you need to keep doing what you're doing. In fact, some of our own colleagues are paying attention because you've called for this, these demonstrations. So we know the demonstrations can be effective. Um, and I also understand that a few good women and men bring about change. We, we are expecting and hoping for, for thousands across this country to come together uh, on the 28th of August. Yeah, it's kind of fitting that John Lewis's name is on this robust voting advancement bill that has been introduced, and we'll see what happens uh, with that. Well, I want to thank you so much. I've been so honored, Martin Luther King III, as you start this March on Voting Rights. As I said, for me, it's it's a personal remembrance uh, coming from a family of activists, not quite 
as famous as yours, of course. And I want to thank you for your work and for talking to the listeners of Equal Time. And I appreciate you spending this time with us. Thank you so much. All right. What's keeping me up at night? For me, as well as today's Equal Time guests, August 28, 1963 stays in my memory. No, I wasn't there, much too young. But I watched on television, even though I didn't understand everything I was seeing and hearing. I was proud that my family was well represented. My three eldest siblings, members of a Baltimore-based civil rights group affiliated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had their assignments. Joan, a college freshman, handing out signs to -to out-of-town attendees. Tony and his green and white Ford Fairlane, available for any errand. Thomas, a third-year law student, in charge of setting up tents with phone lines so reporters could file stories. Our mother, Evelyn Curtis, saw them off before boarding a church bus for Washington. Remembering her beautiful and classy outfit, dress, hat, and heels, always heels to raise her barely five-foot self, I have to laugh when I read years later that some politicians feared a riot. But this wasn't a January 6th insurrection. It was Americans peacefully demanding their full rights as citizens. So it is today, with citizens demanding that most important right, to vote without hurdles erected for partisan gain. Martin Luther King III marches for himself, for his cause, and in the steps of his father, because there is still much work to be done. Now, one equal time listener, Ward, a native of South Carolina, remembers friction between black and white when he was growing up, but he believes there was dialogue, if not always common ground. Now he says, quote, I don't know if we're speaking to each other the right way, unquote. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Check out my columns at Roll Call. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.